Hello and welcome to the next episode of Your House Scotland podcast series, Connecting Women's Voices on Climate Justice, Perspectives from Scotland and Around the World. My name is Helen Hayek and I'm very excited to be receiving two amazing environmental artists today. Uh, so welcome Nicole Dextra and Karen Hackenberg. And thank you on the behalf of the climate and gender team at the UN House for joining us today and taking the time to take part of this little adventure here with us. So in the context of the current COP26, it's more important than ever to talk about climate change. Um, here is a little quote from the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Climate change is happening now and to all of us, no country or community is immune. And as is always the case, the poor and vulnerable are the first to suffer and the worst hit. So besides, according to the UN, the impacts of climate change will not be borne equally or fairly between rich and poor, women and men, and older and younger generations. Consequently, there has been a growing focus on climate justice, which looks at the climate crisis through a human rights lens and on the belief that by working together, we can create a better future for present and future generations. Environmental art is a unique way of climate action. It displays the issues of our current world and can help communities and raise awareness towards better climate justice. Today, we're speaking with two multi-award-winning environmental artists, Nicole Dextra and Karen Hackenberg. I'm going to read a little resume of you, and you can tell us a bit more about yourself And uh, after this. So Karen uh, is an artist who now lives and works near Seattle, Washington. In her painting and drawing series, she takes a light-hearted yet services approach to the subject of ocean degradation, working traditionally with oil, gouache, colored pencil, and graphite, she lovingly and meticulously crafts images of beach trash, aiming to create a provocative visual juxtaposition of form and idea. Nicole is an award-winning environmental artist working in a multitude of media, having created art installations in Spain, Mongolia, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Dawson City, Yukon, etc. She's also a graduate of the Emily Carr University of Art in Vancouver, uh, Canada, where she has a she has been a sessional teacher from 2003 to 2013. Uh, you can correct me if somewhere was wrong. Um, this was a short introduction from the your websites. Um, so, Nicole and Karen, would you like to add anything? Present yourself a little further. Uh, tell us a bit about your art, maybe your current work. Let's see. Where do I start? Um... Uh, my education was at Rhode Island School of Design in um, New England, and uh, there I studied oil painting. And I went through many years of working in the graphic design, textile design industry in San Francisco, and uh, put my painting aside until I moved to the Northwest. And um, that's when I rekindled my, um, my painting career. And at first I studied, um, not studied, at first I... Um, re-engaged with where I left off when I was painting um, before uh, my professional graphic design career. And I started doing landscape design, uh, painting. And I was getting um, a lot of good feedback from that and uh, you know, notice for that work, but I was finding it was not um, communicating my um, 
passion for the environment. It was, I think it could easily be just um, sort of, um, you know, a comforting um, thing for people to look at the beautiful landscape but not really understand why I was painting them. So that's, um, at, at, at that point, I'd had these ideas for quite a long time. I, I would find beach trash on the beach and I would find the messages on the beach trash to be rather ironic because a lot of marketing graphics um, employ natural titles or product names or advertising. And I think the fact that I had worked in graphic design and known how people market and, um, you know, to convince people that, you know, this soap detergent they're going to buy is going to be, make their life wonderful and natural. Um, I think that knowledge informs my work. And so I started by, out of a sense of kind of anger and irreverence, when I found a Tide bottle on the beach one day, I was collecting little, um, cute little fireworks tips, which really annoyed me because people shoot off fireworks on the bay where I live. But I was also collecting them to utilize in sculptures for my work. And I walked by this Tide bottle and was sort of disgusted by it and was going to pick it up on my way home. And then I kind of had this little epiphany where I realized I was walking on the beach during a low tide in which there was a red tide, which is an algae bloom that is often uh, associated with um, a soap detergent with the phosphates that are in detergents. Oh, right. uh, and so I just sort of impudently placed the bottle in the middle of the seascape at the low tide and decided to paint it. And then ever since then, this is in 2009, I, um, I would find one product after another that would give me this sort of free song of, of, you know, uh, irony of what we were doing to the planet as reflected by our products on the beach. And that has been my main source of inspiration for quite some time. Also moving to the Northwest, I was confronted by um, deforestation in a big way. Um, was something I was always aware of. Uh, growing up in New England, I was aware more of polluted streams from man manufacturing industry, but you can't avoid seeing the um, deforestation, especially in the west end of the Olympic Peninsula. So um, that's another kind of theme in my work in my uh, matchstick sculptures and some of my um, unnatural disaster paintings that I'm working on now, which I can talk more about if you're interested. But I want to hear a little bit from Nicole. <laughs> Well, it's funny. Uh, I, I have the same, a very similar kind of trajectory where I uh, was doing other things before I did this. Um, you know, I graduated in 1986. So I had an art practice that was mainly uh, around uh, paper making. So I made sculptural pieces with handmade paper, made all my own paper and everything. And I was very, I mean, I was very interested in the environment. Uh, but I couldn't find a way to bridge that, like to to actually, you know, back then, I mean, there really was nothing. There was no support. I think there was maybe the, uh, what was it called? The Environmental Museum or something. It was just a website. That was the only thing that existed. And, uh, you know, I was uh, 
was so I was interested in sculpture, sculpture and and photography at the same time, and um, I was. It was actually just sort of a an accident that this happened because you know in the in the west coast we're a rainforest so uh, it just rains all the time in the winter but we had um, this was in two thousand and five we had a very bad snowstorm and we were stuck in the house for two weeks and I had been photographing fabric in water and just looking at all the cool shapes of it and everything and if it's sort of very abstract way and I thought oh. What if I took something outside and froze it? <laughs> because I had nothing better to do than to drag my clothes outside and put water on them and freeze them. And uh, so I did that, and I fell completely in love because what I was really interested in was the concept of the ephemeral. I was um, in the, you know, I, I felt that the concept of the ephemeral was something that we didn't grasp very well in sort of, uh, you know. Our, our, our first world kind of society that things have a time and they they have a process and 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 our disconnect with nature basically was what I was interested in and when I worked with ice I just thought it was a beautiful uh, metaphor for that so um, I was like completely hooked I just wanted to do this and and I mean, as a photographer, I was drawn to it because I had the light shining through. So it looked very sort of, um, you know, almost like an x-ray. You could see all the seams in the fabric and, and, but of course it's Vancouver. It just started raining again. So I couldn't do any more of it. So, um, I eventually went to, to Banff and to other places in Canada to do this kind of work, but it's very seasonal. So in the summer I decided to just kind of give myself a challenge. And I thought, well, I'm very interested in this idea of the garment, of the, I, the idea of um, humans actually wearing nature and as, as a way to connect us to the natural world. And so I gave myself the challenge of what, how could I make a garment out of something that was completely vegetable matter and, um, and eventually have somebody wear it. Wonderful. And that started this whole process. <laughs> and back then, there was nothing. Uh, I mean, there was no books. There was there was nothing like this. All I found on the internet uh, was uh, one exhibition in Australia with um, students that had been working with um, that were in a florist program, like florist yes arrangement and stuff. And they had made uh, garments out of vegetables, and 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 you know back then the the pictures were oh, this big, right? <laughs> How do they do that? And I, I so I had to wait, uh, you know, for the summer to be able to do these kinds of things. So it took several years before I could actually make something that was usable, uh, and that just got me going on this whole. Uh, yeah, on this whole process, I found that I found a way for me to uh, approach the idea of uh, the environment in an original way. Because I, I, I was coming from, you know, in art school, I learned about land art, which was very interesting. But I kind of thought, yeah, with land art, you know, those are just guys with bulldozers. Those that's not real. I mean, it's great that they did it outside. It was groundbreaking and all of that. But 
it was sort of like, that's not what I want to do. And how can I find a voice in uh, this new sort of emerging uh, world of art? So that's kind of my little story. Yes, I can totally relate to what you're saying about finding a voice. I think one of the reasons why I put painting aside for many years mm -hmm. is I didn't realize it till, until I um, started, started this body of work. But I, I really needed meaning in my life, mm -hmm. in, in my life pursuit, whatever it was. And um, going to art school, there was a lot of aesthetic training and I guess what you would call art for art's sake, mm -hmm. which I can relate to, but it wasn't. And I actually feel that I employ that in my work. But I needed for um, motivation and my life journey to combine that somehow with my passion for the world, the world we live in, and specifically nature and wildlife. Um, you know, I have a passion for wildlife and animals. And I was just increasingly heartbroken ever since I was a child to see habitat destruction. I grew up in a rural area in New England. And um, so it was kind of like, magic when I found this Tide bottle and it propelled me into this whole genre and that's when I you know I don't know if I was so consciously aware how much I needed meaning but mm -hmm. it was the magic was being able yeah. to combine my aesthetic sensibilities as you do in the pieces I've seen online with my passion for caring for the world and um, it was really idiosyncratic and really personally my voice. It was like, I just came alive. And yeah. so I will be working on this in some form or another um, for the rest of my life, I believe. <laughs> it is not just, you know, a commercial product for me, obviously it's mm -hmm. my life calling. So, and I can't con I continue to get excited by just these weird ironies that I come across. Like I found a, a balloon, one of those um, shiny silver metallic balloons that people get for holidays on the beach a couple of years ago. And it said Mother's Day. And I thought, this is just too perfect. <laughs> Mother Earth. <laughs> and a balloon and Mother's Day, you know, and that's, you know, I'm here to kind of finish this um, unnatural um, disasters series of five paintings um, in the next few months. And I'm going to work on that um, painting because it's just too ironically crazy. <laughs> so it really kind of hits to the heart. So, um, yeah. That's very, that's fascinating. Um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, ha has it ever been an intention, uh, or did you have it, to try to maybe change people's mind about the environment, to make them more aware, uh, because you have this awareness? Did you both, uh, would you like to, to share this with people? Is it intended in your art since the beginning? Has it came after? Um, well, I found for myself, uh, it has evolved quite a bit. So like I said, at the very beginning, it was more about the concept of the ephemeral. And I too am coming from art school that was very, very conceptual. Um, and I kind of 
fought against that, <laughs> uh, though I'm very interested in concepts, but conceptual art kind of left me very dry, and, um, and I just felt that we were pushing the public away with conceptual art. I just saw it happening more and more where people were going to galleries less and less because they just walked into spaces and didn't understand and felt like they were uh, being felt, you know, made stupid by not understanding what was going on. So the art world was kind of closing in on itself. So the idea of, of communicating with people was there, but it was such a difficult bridge to cross um, because by then we had lost the public. So um, for me, uh, I, I started out by just working on my own uh, this concept of the ephemeral and I didn't know how people were going to take it. Um, and I found that when I started making the garments, they became very popular. And um, this was kind of a weird thing because <laughs> I was trying to talk about this deeper meaning, but of course people just saw them as cute or pretty or because it was a dress, I think it appealed to a very sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, princess kind of concept of, of that just reached into people, which was kind of interesting because you know, it reaches into this sort of childhood thing, but they would stop there. So one of the things that happened is I started working more outdoors mm -hmm. uh, with people. So I did uh, some projects, like in a botanical park here in, in Vancouver. So I got to meet people. And uh, then I discovered that I really liked that. I really liked the idea of uh, engaging with people on a sort of a one-to-one -one basis and instead of the gallery and instead of the white walls and, and the whole market thing, I, here was the artist and the public. Um, so that got me sort of fired up to do more of that. But it also showed me how um, people, like, I, I always remember this one woman who came into the park and I was making this whole series of dresses. I made 21 dresses over an entire summer out of just plant material. Wow. And I would put them in the garden as I made them. And there was a whole concept behind it. It was 21 dresses. It was a little green dress as opposed to the little black dress and about, um, you know, uh, fast fashion, which wasn't even a word back then. And, um, this woman came in, she goes, oh my God, this is fabulous. This is like, you know, just going on and on. And she says, I want one of these. Can, can I have one of these? And I had to point out to her, I said, honey, it's made out of leaves. You know, it's not like you can buy it. And even if you put it in your yard, it's going to rot. And, and her mind just kind of went, what? It's not something I can have. So... Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, it was it was this really interesting process, and um, and you know it, it made me want to do more sort of uh, performance work and engagement work with people, uh, even though uh, I personally am uh, more of an introvert. <laughs> Hi, I'm out there, kind of uh, performer type person, so that taken quite a bit so basically I I worked with people that were performers and wore the dresses and we tried to do things that way 
Thank you so yeah. much. Yes, so, I, I saw them on your website and that, that looked incredible. I wish I could see them in real. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're all compost now. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, I can relate to much of what you were saying and um, just that um, interacting with the public, whether I've done some uh, public art installations, but also just in a gallery scene, watching the transformation that happens with people approaching one of my paintings or my sculpture because I make them kind of seductive in the detail that I use and the light. Um, I related to one of the things that you said about the translucency and the light coming through the ice because um, one of the things that I paint that people really are drawn to amongst other things are plastic bottles and I paint them on the beach with light filtering through them and um, you know they look beautiful and I love playing with that idea of beauty and trash and our discards uh, I like that sort of dichotomy and you know I think that human beings are incredibly in many ways incredibly talented uh, creative beings to have even developed the kind of technologies that make a plastic bottle I think that a plastic one plastic bottle is exquisitely beautiful um, and so I like to kind of um, I, I, I think that my paintings bring up this concept of what is um, what is you know what makes us what makes it trash like what do we value in our culture what makes it trash and you know is one you know one plastic bottle enough or what is the place of, of plastic in our life so I guess you know watching people approach a painting and being seduced by the color you know the kind of tends to be somewhat vibrant color and the detail and then you know all of a sudden realize what it's about it's it starts a thought process and so I think that's this subtle kind of subversive place where my activism comes alive um, rather than being overtly political and you know um, on the street so to speak it's sort of a quiet personal revelation that people have this little aha they have that kind of echoes my aha of finding this thing on the beach so um, and I, I can relate to what you're saying about um, being introverted because you know it's <laughs> I'm that way myself but us introverts need to get out there and have our moments of interconnection with people so I've really enjoyed uh, that. I did an installation with a couple of fellow artists locally of called Welcome to the Plastosphere of a sort of fantastic um, potential undersea environment made out all out of cut up plastic bo uh, bottles where the um, where people could participate by making a bottle and, 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 and we would include it in the sculpture. And uh, just people's thought process come alive as they engaged with the materials and the ideas and being seduced by the light coming through the bottles once again. So, yeah, I saw as well. I had a look at your plastic sphere. Plastic. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> looked amazing. No, it's really good that you you're both raising awareness on your on your regions as well. I think it's a it's a really good way to impact many people. I think art is an amazing way to do that. Um, I had a, a small question about uh, the water theme that I, I, I found in both of your work uh, on the ephemeral nickel, um, but also what was it? Yeah, ocean degradation for you uh, with the plastic, um, Karen. Um, oh yes, the water scarcity as well in Kronos on your short movie, uh, nickel was pretty obvious. Um, I was wondering if water was an issue in your region. You talked about deforestation as well, Karen. Um, is this something that could impact uh, and and do injustice to communities of your local area? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I'm working on a series that has uh, three different sort of environmental uh, disasters. One of them is, is drought, one of them is fire. Mm -hmm and one of them is floods. So um, I have, I've chosen these things because they are actually happening in my neighborhood, like they're happening here in Canada, they're happening in the States um, also. So, uh, and they're coming from my own experience. Um, and the idea of, of drought, um, you know, Actually, having spent some time in California really brought it home for me because they're just so acutely aware of it. And, um, and we have in Canada, uh, in British Columbia, we have a very large um, sort of food belt like they do in, in the U.S. It's sort of on the West Coast, this food belt that, that comes up from south to north. Ours is the Okanagan uh, Valley. And uh, we've seen many changes there over the years. And basically what they are is they're arid kind of landscapes that, um, you know, get a lot of sunlight. So farming becomes uh, a possibility there, but it needs a lot of irrigation. And hence the problem with the water, because we are irrigating to the point of that there's not going to be wa any water to get, right? And um, so that's kind of the story that I'm telling in my film, that it's in, in the future, and that has happened, and the food sources have gone, and people have moved out, and it just becomes this arid uh, landscape. So the character lives in a house full of sand. So, uh, and the other uh, issue with, uh, with water here is... Um, I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. That uh, yeah, in Canada we have a lot of water, so we are afraid that in the future, uh, you know, the U.S. and California is going to run out of water, and they're going to want Canadian water, <laughs> and that that's going to become a big issue um, in the future. So uh, that's sort of part of my thinking process, also. When it comes to water, mm, of course. And uh, what about you, Karen? Was it? Um, an uh, well, my first thought with the question is there is a lot of water up here in the Northwest. We're surrounded by water. Um, the climate change um, 
has affected our area in many ways. And, you know, my unnatural disaster series is in many ways similar to what Nicole was talking about. Um, one of the paintings addresses fire. One of them is about, um, you know, uh, you know, the increase in um, earthquakes and uh, tsunamis, flooding, and um, the latest one is a deforestation one. Uh, there'll be two more which have yet to be determined, but they'll probably be, about, one of them is about uh, extinction um, with, um, in the Arctic. I went on a trip to the Arctic in uh, Svalbard and Greenland uh, a few years ago and um, observed what was going on up there. But um, also there are those <clears throat> the same dynamics here in Washington with uh, California wanting to broker deals with getting the water from the Northwest. I lived in California for 15 years and was lived there during a cycle of drought. Um, that was in the 80s. And at that point, people were aware there was some sort of local, you know, wisdom or lore that used, there, there was a cycle of drought and rain in California. Mm. I, I don't know what's <laughs> happening now, but it was like seven years drought and seven years, you know, wet. And so um, there was a time, you know, I was in California where we were rationing water and it became a way of life and a consciousness that I carried with me regardless of whether I live in a, a, an abundantly uh, an area that has an abundance of water. Um, there are so many um, issues around water um, in terms of habitat for animals. When I think of climate justice, I think of my passion for wildlife and animals. I think they are very vulnerable and don't have a voice um, to stand up for themselves in our culture. And they, um, there are lots of food sources in the ocean that are getting depleted by overfishing and uh, warming waters. So a lot of my work sort of, um, you know, subtly addresses those issues by the, 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 the product packages I choose to place in the seascape. Mm -hmm. But we also, you know, bringing it to a local level, we have a water system in Port Townsend that was funded by the paper mill here um, many uh, decades ago. It was installed by the paper company, and there is a legacy now embedded in the way our water is distributed that the paper company gets the majority of the water. And um, so when there is a, a dearth of water, um, there's a lot of tension between the community and all the water going to the paper mill. And it's very complex. Um, it's not very straightforward because the paper mill employs a whole lot of people who live here. So in terms of you know people's livability and viability, it's a double-edged sword. And that's the kind of thing I think about a lot. I think about both sides of everything. The fact that humans are really incredible. I don't want to beat up on humans. We do pretty wonderful things, but we we don't have a lot of foresight, unfortunately, and we're somewhat oblivious to our impact on the planet. We make beautiful things, and we need a livelihood, but how do we balance that? And so um, I really don't like the paper mill. I don't like that all the water goes there. I don't like that the, that the paper mill pollutes. But there have to be alternative ways to employ people 
yeah. um, to, for everybody to have a, a living wage. So um, I don't have an answer to that. I think a lot of my work is sort of bearing witness to the issue and helping people um, approach the subject. Yeah, and actually, I, I find that very interesting, too, because I think about those things uh, very much. And, uh, you know, it, it's about uh, changing the way that we think and actually look at natural resources. Correct. So, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a long haul. Like, that, that amount of change, which is actually the basis of how we are going to phase climate change. That is that work has to get done, and that's and that's where I think that the arts are very helpful because arts help propel culture, which helps propel the way that people think. So you know, art helps uh, put some of these ideas forward. But it's it's I find myself in a very um, kind of difficult position in many ways because I feel that what's needed is a slow evolution that that's not what's needed is that's what is basically how we're built and the way that things are going the evolution for people to start thinking about alternatives um about alternative jobs you know like people we have you know the forest industry well people have been loggers all of these years and you know they're they're comfortable with that and uh, they don't want to change and they want jobs so and our prime minister is always touting, you know, environmental things. He's actually doing it now at uh, COP. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, we're, we have so many pipelines and, and we're cutting down so many trees and stuff that <clears throat> they're, they're kind of stuck in between this. How do we keep people happy with jobs and how do we move forward with environmental, um, you know, progress mm -hmm. and it's kind of the same problem with the artists because I think that as an artist I feel anyways in myself that I can only be subtle and it's only going to be this slow kind of having people do those little aha moments which is very slow right <laughs> but if you stand on a soapbox tied <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you have, that was a joke sorry um, but but you know the idea of if if it's approached in a preaching kind of way right mm -hmm. uh, I find that uh, that is actually just a step backwards mm -hmm. because it makes people want to shut off even more so in the arts it's it's difficult to just kind of you know, go out and, 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 you know, have an exhibition or make an art piece or whatever, they're just going to bang on people's heads. And, uh, and I feel like I don't want to do that, because that's how we started the environmental movement in the first place. We thought, we thought that, oh, we just tell them how many whales are dying, and people are going to change. And we saw that that didn't work at all. Unfortunately, it didn't work at all. All it did was make people want to just forget about it. Because right. we're going to, you know, hell in a handbasket. There's nothing I can do. It just brought up so much apathy. So it means that as an artist, I have to be not devious because I'm not trying to be devious. I just believe that the subtlety of both 
um, you know, like, uh, Karen, you were talking about that sort of seductive thing um, of, of getting the audience there, mm-hmm. and then they can have their aha moment if they want to, because in right. reality, they have to want to. Exactly. They have to be ready for it. They have to be, so it's this slow progression, right? And um, the, the problem with the climate crisis is, uh, well, we're running out of time. So it's kind of like, uh, <laughs> are we going to evolve in time to be able to, um, you know, do something that's going to be changing? I think, I think that the arts is actually, uh, uh, needs to be in the picture because the art actually um, is doing that part of raising the consciousness and, and um, expanding the culture to, to more, to different ideas. Uh, I personally don't have much uh, faith in politicians at all, mm. politics, and, and yeah. uh, <laughs> that as a process of actually changing things. Mm. I think that what the what we're doing sort of as the grassroots is more important. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I agree too. And I feel um, that my best way of communicating is with visual art. And I mm-hmm. have an obligation to myself yeah. and, and to society to use my voice and the best, using my best tools. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want to be part of the conversation and, you know, whatever it takes um, is, you know, that's my job. And I, I actually really love painting, so I'm really delighted to have found a way to paint and enjoy it for its own sake, but in, in, imbue it with um, kind of those aha moments. Thank you so much. Yes, I was thinking with your art, you're raising uh, daily concerns as well. I think that's amazing that you're not in the past, but you're really on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we find all the issues currently in your art. Um, I think that's pretty amazing. I think you can impact many people with this as well. Um, I think also the, the awareness uh, has changed maybe. Uh, through the past decade, I mean, I was still a bit young, but but I don't think it's it's been very fast neither. I just can yeah. tell people are changing. Um, I, I've done myself a, a master in sustainability years ago, and it wasn't created before maybe five years ago. And I feel yeah. things are opening a little bit, but there's, there's still so much to do, and it's so slow. Um, I, I've learned during. I think that was. During my master, yeah, that the first uh, movements for for actually nature protection were starting during the 70s or something. Yes. With uh, the yeah. 60s even with Rachel Carson. And right. That, that's pretty, that's amazing, but also sad in a way that it, it comes from the 60s, 70s. And yes. we're, we're still in 2020 and, and it's not. I know. I, I think about that yeah. a lot. I was in high school and uh, when the first Earth Day um, happened and then the Clean Water Act, that was 1970 and 1972 the Clean Water Act happened and um, fortunately for the Clean Water Act a lot of rivers in the country but especially I'm aware of in New England a lot of the polluted rivers from um, mills were cleaned up since then so there has been some progress but um, it shocks me to know having 
you know, that whole movement starting back then mm-hmm. that we're still in the position that we're in. Um, but I do think, in the, as you said, um, I learned that um, in the last 10 years, you know, there has been some awareness growing and it is slow because when I started my work in 2009 with the uh, Tide Bottle, um, there nobody was, almost nobody was aware of the plastic issues in the ocean. Yeah. The, the, the Pacific um, garbage patch, as they call it, or the Pacific uh, gar- Ocean Gyre, um, has was not in the news. No one was aware of it. I happened to come across, as I started the work, I wasn't aware of anybody, you know, working on this. But when I started the work, I happened to hear a couple of uh, pieces on uh, my local uh, NPR radio station about Curtis Ebbesmeyer and the um, rubber duck um, uh, work he did. He was he he was an oceanographer who developed the concept of driftology and studying the currents of the world um, by the plastics and the garbage that was dumped in the ocean by um, uh, container ships losing their containers at sea in the 80s. They could track this garbage. So I started to see this little glimmer of an awareness of this um, at the time. And then in the last 10 years, like year by year, it sort of exploded. And I think it was last year where um, Earth Day internationally was, I think the last year or the year before, their focus was on ocean plastics. So it became uh, quite um, in the public mind. I'm not quite sure how much that's affected consumerism and people's choices for you know buying plastics but um it's definitely much more um there is much more of an awareness now mm-hmm. well, i think it affected uh more than we think maybe because there's the now zero waste became like a trend or something yes exactly it should be i mean it should be the norm i think at this stage but yes. um more and more people are, are trying but i don't think we have all the tools uh on our hands to become right. fully zero waste um no. but we should i think at some point um yeah but it, it's progressing in a way yeah. yes yeah and hopefully it's ex- exponential right so if you think back yeah like the 80s or whatever my god you were just you know, talking to yourself, really, (laughs) just echoing off the walls, talking about these issues. It was very, very, very uh, small kind of uh, world and very marginalized. And now it's becoming more, uh, I guess, mainstream kind of conversations, which is good. Um, It's also problematic in many other ways, uh, you know, with greenwashing and so... Yeah, so it's always, to me, uh, again, this idea of, um, of the economy and our, our, our wanting to do uh, well by nature, right? So to use less plastic, but, and it comes to the price tag, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody who's buying something organic that's in a glass bottle as opposed to something that's cheaper that comes in a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that's where I think that, uh, you know, we can use some leadership on, uh, is these kinds of, uh, things because like you said at the very beginning, it is, uh, the people who, uh, for whom that is, 
you know, the, the cheapest thing is what they can buy. They don't have any choice, mm -hmm. you know. They have to buy the milk in the plastic bag. I don't even know if that even mm -hmm. still exists. But, um, you know, and so it's an economic issue also. But for those people to be able to make those decisions, we have to lay the groundwork for them um, when they're at the store and uh, make the options viable for them, right? I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we, we might have, uh, you might have talked a little bit about this, but I was thinking, what are your hopes your art could achieve uh, in... Uh, climate action or climate justice what, what would you like maybe to have as an impact besides maybe raising awareness uh, do you think your art or you could try to um, help to make concrete changes in your areas to uh, raise awareness to the governments um, so they can take action um, what do you think about this uh, it's a tricky well, yeah, I, I, I actually uh, don't have that much hope for changing the government. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, this is just my own personal belief. I believe that people in government are there, um, they're interested in power. So they want to get elected and, you know, they're just going to do whatever they need to do or say to get elected and to stay elected. So, um I'm, I'm not trying to reach them because mm -hmm. I know that their, their, their focus and their mindset is so different than mine that um, the only way that I can change their mind is if they see enough of the people want something mm -hmm. and they think that that can be an election platform for them, then they will jump on board. But... I, I guess I'm I'm sounding very uh, pessimistic about politicians, but even local politicians, you know, we've had NDP uh, governments here in in British Columbia, and uh, I mean, it, I I thought it was great because they're really for social justice and things like that. Um, but uh, politicians are politicians, so I. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go uh, protesting on Parliament Hill anytime soon. And I, I'm not that person anyways. Uh, so I still feel that the thing that I can do is to do my work and try and um, reach people that way. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Karen? What do you think? Um, I sometimes am encouraged by... Um, laws that are enacted to uh, protect the environment. I'm not exactly sure how that affects um, climate justice, um, but I do see positive steps being taken, taken I'd say, in, in um, California and Washington State. I think the leadership in both states um, is aligned with uh, a lot of the population, which is a cons concerned about the environment and are very affected by what's going on with the environment. This is on a different topic, but I was pleased to hear that in California, they recently uh, made a, a law to outlaw lawnmower, gas-powered lawnmowers and, uh, you know, other kinds of small gas-powered machinery, like 
for yard maintenance um, and other um, you know occupations because they're really majorly polluting. Um, they don't have um, all the filtration sy systems. So that's an issue of air quality, but I, I often see California stepping up to the plate and enacting laws that then become uh, a precedent for other states in the country. Um, mm -hmm. Washington State as well has a governor who's very green um, and is constantly advocating for, um, for wildlife and environmental issues. But then, you know, there's always the rest of the gang that they have to make compromises with. So yeah. I can't say I feel optimistic. I'm, I'm usually more surprised than anything else when something like that actually manages to get through and have an effect. And I, I agree with Nicole that I'm not that person, that kind of person, um, a political, to get involved in a, you know, uh, political, overt political engagement. And that's why I find, since I don't have that desire and ability, it's not my strongest voice. Mm -hmm. um, I really put all of that into my art. Um, and sometimes I, you know, I get involved with, um, you know, in, with a government agency like Environment Washington is a, is a group that I work with. I kind of provide my images as a discussion point um, with, um, you know, in a political way. And it, I think it actually helps because some of that political work is so heady and so much of a different kind of sensibility to, to bring a visual and aesthetic mm -hmm. aspect into it, I think can enliven the conversation. Yeah, I have to say that I think I'm feeling a bit pessimistic today because yesterday on the news, our, um, our premier of our province of BC came up with this plan. You know, we have a lot of old growth forest here in mm -hmm. British Columbia, and forestry is one of the major industries other and, and fishing. But you know, they've been they've been logging old growth forest for a long time, and and instead of actually because of course now he's in the spotlight because of cop and all of this mm. he kind of has to come up with a deal but he's not quite ready yet because you know those those forestry companies are funding him and and funding a lot of jobs in our province so he's stuck between a rock and a hard place so he came up with this idea which is kind of ludicrous of um he uh, wanted to put a kind of a moratorium on logging old growth forests for two years, two years only. Um, but that depended on him consulting with all the Aboriginal peoples in the province. And they had till the end of the month to come up with a proposal for him. So and it's that it's that kind of politicking right we're kind of we're, we're at that point at least yes the the discussion is at the table but at the same time they're just kind of treading so softly and so cautiously through the issues right that just trying to make the appearance that something's trying happening. Trying to make yeah. the appearance, yeah. But it's, I mean, it just seemed like such a ludicrous idea. And then, of course, they had a lot of uh, Native leaders coming on and saying, well, of course, it's, we've been telling them all this time. Now they're giving us till the end of the month to come right. up with a proposal. We've been on their case for years and years and years about vlogging. So, yeah, um, 
they're, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, and also maybe, uh, well, I don't know if I should say this, but it's kind of my age, too. I find that when I was younger, I was much more naive, mm -hmm. and I was more into that direct action. I've had lots of conversations <laughs> with my nephew about, uh, we both met at Extinction Rebellion <laughs> uh, protest on the street, and, uh, and we had this conversation here. I'm, I'm the older person with this. Yes, this, this has a place and it's important, but at the same time, it's not all the work. And he's coming from a place of anger and right. being upset that he's a generation that's inheriting all of this. Yeah. And look, we just got to do something mm -hmm. and, and we got to do it now. And I don't care what it takes, you know? Um, right. So... Well there was a time when we were that way. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> the 70s. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, all of that uh, marching and demonstrations, they're all still very important mm -hmm. right. in our way to um, uh, get, get the politicians to hear us. Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost like when, you know, if, if you get a protest that's big enough, it's massive enough that it gets on the news, then, uh, you know, the guys that are telling the politicians, because I do believe they're just puppets, but those guys are saying, hey, you're going to have to put this on your agenda now because there's these gazillions of people out on the streets. Mm -hmm. So that's still, um, it's still important, but I think it's more of a movement of the people. That's no, what's needed. Yes. I'm going to take part, actually, as a, a volunteer to a, an organization to be a steward at the Global March on Saturday in Glasgow. And Lovely. I, I'm not used to this, neither. Uh, I've never really been in, in big protests because I thought that wouldn't make the difference. Um, but with the time, I realized that when they are big, I can be um, um, yeah, a way to solve a problem. And also because it's kind of right now the most efficient way, in a way, for me to protest and to show my um, my values, in a way, yes. Um, yes, I think there's a definite need for that. And thank you for that. And, and that's part of the raising of the consciousness also, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I was listening to someone uh, yesterday who's uh, a filmmaker, and he was saying that you know, in the entertainment business, it's very difficult to to try and enact change because if you start, uh, you know, you you make something that will make people think. Well, sometimes what they think is, I'm just going to turn this off because I don't want to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. So, so you you hope that um, you know, you hope that it's it's. Uh, that's why I'm saying it's slow. It's increment by increment uh, that the people that see that many people protesting, mm -hmm. instead of turning that off, they might go, oh, well, maybe they have a point. Oh, thank you so much. I had some questions, but we, we mentioned that, like, I mean, all the themes I was thinking about has been even more interesting than I could have expected. So um i'm really happy with that thank you so much for for this amazing talk um i'm excited to see the results as well um i think that was really interesting